To make it in cannabis, first you must dare to. 12 years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. The wait is over. Let's grow together this November 28th through December 1st in Vegas. You'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. But wait, the clock is ticking. Get your tickets by September 28th and save up to $200. And here's a secret. Podcast listeners get 10% off with promo code 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your tickets at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. Today, we've got Bob Fireman. He is the CEO of Merrimid. You, know, you can find them uh, publicly traded on the OTCQX under MRMD. Bob, thanks for being here at The Talking Hedge. Josh, thanks for having us and thanks for providing uh, the industry with the up-to-date knowledge of everything in cannabis. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, tell us a little bit about Merrimid. Uh, how did you, it's a multi-state operator. You were in uh, Massachusetts. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in a little bit about Merrimid. Okay, thank you. Um, Merrimid is a uh, multi-state operator. Uh, we're in five states right now. Uh, Massachusetts, Maryland, Delaware, Illinois, and Nevada. <clears throat> uh, I've been... Uh, Uniquely about Merrimed is our validated management team that's been together over 10 years. Hmm. Makes us sort of a dinosaurs in this industry. Hmm. We've seen it explode from uh, little operations out in places like Seattle, Oregon, California. But uh, as an attorney and a sort of a serial entrepreneur, uh, I've been involved in <clears throat> causes and uh, issues and doing startup businesses in a variety of uh, industries. <clears throat> Excuse me. One of them was uh, sustainable agriculture. Uh, I had a company called Sky Vegetables, and we were going to put hydroponic farms on the roofs of the city to grow fresh local food uh, all year round. Uh, Whole Foods asked me to come out to California. Uh, they were building 26 stores in the Bay Area. And uh, I said, you want me to grow lettuce in California? I'm from Massachusetts. <laughs> I mean, that's where the lettuce is from. So long story short, they said, yes, we want to make a statement. And uh, we started this project in California and San Francisco when uh, Gavin Newsom, who was mayor at the time, said, let's make a statement. Let's put a hydroponic farm on top of the San Francisco Convention Center, the Moscone Center. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm developing a farm on top of the Moscone Center when the mayor called and said, I'm so sorry. I thought the city owned the convention center, but it's in a trust for 100 years. And uh, the lawyers say, I can't do it. I said, well, can I have my $60,000 back for the engineering? No, I can't do that. Mm. I'll give you the Piera. I said, give me my basketball. I'm going home. So mm. we went back. Uh, we bent, went back to New York and we built a 10,000 foot hydroponic farm on top of an eight story affordable housing project in the Bronx. And we started to grow local fresh food uh, in the Bronx and still do today. Uh, 
I learned as I was out there about the Wild West. This is back in 2008 and 9 of uh, California. And uh, some of my guys that I said were going home, they said, well, can you help us with a little grow? And all of a sudden, me and my partner, John Levine, were funding a grow in South Aptos. And all of a sudden, I owned a dispensary in San Jose. And we learned about the Wild West of cannabis. And then when Peter Lewis and George Soros started funding referendums back east for legal uh, medical marijuana, uh, we got involved with a group and started to develop applications and won licenses uh, in uh, five states. Actually, our team won in six. So as we brought from California best practices, uh, learning how to do it with some, the people back here, we uh, morphed into Marimed in 2014 uh, and took over the public company in 2017. So the team's validated. We've won uh, over 17 licenses in five or six states. We've developed over 300,000 square feet of regulatory compliant, state-of-the-art cultivation, production, uh, dispensaries. Uh, so we're validated, we're experienced. Um, and uh, we're nationwide. We've also developed our own proprietary brands. Our, Betty, our Betty's Eddies are the top selling uh, taffy uh, uh, in, the, in the states that we're in. Uh, we're coming out with uh, uh, vegan ice cream and other sorts of products. And this next week, we're going to launch our Bubby's Baked uh, Goods with a big promotion. We just created the largest cannabis infused brownie in the history of the world. It's uh, three by three feet, nine square feet, 15 inches tall, weighs 840 pounds, and, can, and I think uh, is 20,000 milliliters of the top API cannabis oil we have. Um, now, is this, is this the largest brownie in the world? You guys made this to, for, for your 10-year anniversary? What, what was this for? For the promotion of our new launch of Buddy's Baked Goods. Buddy's Baked Goods, okay. And so that'll be out third. That'll be out Tuesday. Um, I can announce it today because I don't think you'll go live till then. But yeah. Um, so we're 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 uh, you know we're cooking. We uh, we're an MSO that's a little under the radar. Well, I'm not I'm not done with this brownie yet, Bob. Okay. Is this thing infused? You're talking about 840 pound edible. Is this, this have THC in it? THC. <laughs> How many 20, milligrams does this have? Do you know? 20,000 milligrams. 20,000. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Josh, what are you doing next Wednesday? You know, we're going to cut oh, it up. We yeah. can only, it has to be done in five uh, milligram servings, but, uh, I might have to get in line a few times then. Um, yeah, that sounds amazing. Someone the vegan ice cream, I got to ask you the influence on the vegan ice cream. Is is that from, um, why is the name escaping me? Because they're a super popular ice cream company, and I think they're based in Massachusetts. Um, Emac and Bolios. Well, I'm, I'm thinking of the ones with like the Jerry Garcia, those guys. Oh, ben, and, ben and Jerry's. Yeah, are they from, are they from over there? They're from Vermont. Okay, okay. 
Is, was welcome. that the was that the inspiration or why why vegan? Because we don't even have infused coffee really. I'm from Seattle, home of Starbucks, and we can't get normal stuff. So you're talking about niche products that you're doing. Whereas what I've seen, at least on the West Coast, is that chocolate flavored espresso beans don't really sell for whatever reason is too expensive to make infused coffee. But you're going out on a limb making some vegan ice cream. What was the influence? Um. There's a, there's a brand back here called Emac and Bolios that predates Ben and Jerry's. And, uh, you know, historically, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania are the ice cream capital in the country. Mm. So uh, Emac and Bolios was uh, back in the 60s with the Rolling Stones. It was like a cultural thing back in the 60s and 70s uh, with Aerosmith and and all these guys in it. So uh, the creator of it came to us and we forged a partnership mm. and uh, we couldn't believe uh, he has around 60 stores and does a big wholesale business. So uh, we worked on uh, coming out with something new, innovative. Mm -hmm. I mean, challenges of delivering ice cream to dispensaries have its challenges as does all new categories like beverage. But when we tried the ice cream, uh, it's amazing. I mean, so we, we, we did a test market. Our guys love it. There's no cream in it, but it's the creamiest thing I've ever tasted, and there's not a drop of cream in it. So uh, we're launching that now in first quarter, and we think it will be an interesting brand. Uh, we're launching a brand that uh, of powdered drink mix. Our vibration brands are coming out. We're coming out with Bubby's Baked Goods, and... We're coming out with uh, deeper lines of our Betty's Eddies. I mean, our Betty's Eddies uh, is the top selling a soft taffy chew in every state that we're in. Those are popular yeah. in about every state. You can't have gummies in Washington state because gummies are illegal because they're attracted to children. But taffies, however, same thing. Taffies are really popular. Um, I, you know, the, when I lost my appendix, things got weird and I can't do dairy and wheat and sugar and alcohol are just weird. So the vegan ice cream, I find really interesting. That's probably going to go really, really well with that, um, 840 pound, 20,000 milligram brownie. Uh, but yet ice cream wouldn't even work on the West coast because it requires refrigeration. So anything that requires refrigeration isn't necessarily legal, at least in Washington, it's an option to put a drink in a fridge, but if it's required, not allowed. Tell me a little bit about, because you're in five different states, how do you manage which products that you bring on knowing that maybe it's not available because of the regulations? Sure. And, you know, some of the states are still medical only. Mm -hmm. So the issues of edibles of what's recreational looking you know, so some places we can call something a mint, uh, and in other places it's called a chewable tablet. Hmm. Um, those barriers are breaking down. Most states will go uh, adult use, and uh, adult use against medical has its own idiosyncrasies. I mean, in, in the states where we have both, we have a five milligram limit on dosing in adult use. Mm -hmm. But on medical, there's no limit. Mm -hmm. I mean, we still have people that are chronically ill that want a 30 or a 50 milligram 
product and can't get it in the adult use, so they have to take 20 of them to get to what they need. Mm-hmm. So there's, uh, other than taxes and, and things, states are working through those programs. Some states have supported medical. I think there were issues in Washington state when they allowed the adult use, mm-hmm. would they preserve the medical program? And I think uh, they didn't do the best of jobs. I think in Colorado, they did better. And I think everything is better. So, you know, we were around when there was only California and Colorado. So now in 33 states in the District of Columbia, I think states are doing a better job of getting ahead of the curve, providing more uh, uses for more modalities and more illnesses. And as uh, new states come on and in, even in the South, I think they're getting the benefit of the experience of other states have had in these programs. So yeah, we uh, the mission of Marimed is to really help improve the lives of our customers through cannabis-infused and cannabis products. We stick to that. It's a culture we have within our company. And I think what differentiates Marimed from other MSOs is our commitment to quality, to craft style bud uh, at scale. Uh, If you walk into our facilities, our people are happy. They're part of a bigger family of people. And we love the success we're having and all the good things we do to all our many customers. You got started by, uh, you got involved in the cannabis industries through some uh, interesting business deals, right? So you were kind of doing this hydroponics on rooftops, being in Washington, seeing the medical market just get eviscerated organs, you know, not really there. I don't think California's is going to last and maybe Colorado's is better, but longevity, not sure that it's going to be there to bring medical back because I'm, I'm a, I'm a medical patient and a hundred milligram cap here isn't enough to your point. I'm not going to, oh, I'm not going to buy multiple hundred milligram. Um, Cause all of these things have sugar. Um, and so I, I want to find something that, you know, with the powdery drink that you have or whatever that has, I get RSO. So if I can get a high milligram and nothing else, that's kind of what I'm looking for is the cannabinoids to bring medical back could we do something collaborative like hydroponics on rooftops for medical patients? Because it's not really being done elsewhere. I don't know if there's room or space in Manhattan to do it anywhere else. doesn't really make sense in Florida have all these crazy greenhouses. It makes sense to utilize existing infrastructure like commercial real estate and anywhere else you can do. It's sort of a co-op model to grow medical marijuana on rooftops. Is that feasible? Is that a feasible business model to grow cannabis hydroponically on rooftops? Oh, physically, is it capable? Yes. <clears throat> is it feasible or financially? It, uh, of course it is. Obviously, um, I used to say it's, it's easier to raise money for cannabis business at $4,000 a pound than for lettuce at 5 and $6 a pound. Um, I don't think they're going to uh, allow cannabis to be grown everywhere. You know, the uh, compliance of uh, having a secured facility, uh, some states you can't grow outdoors, most you can't. 
even greenhouse have to be in a secured environment. And some states still require indoor grows, you know, which aren't environmentally the best. But I, um, I don't distinguish the cannabis from medical to adult use. Hmm. To me, the difference is application and uh, taxes. Um, obviously, the difference between having one of these medical cards with a doctor recommendation um, allowed for the implementation of medical programs, which really was the precursor to adult use. So to me, it's all medical <clears throat> for the people that want medical relief. 29% of the population that have debilitating illnesses where cannabis can give them relief. And I think whether it's adult use or it's medical, um, that distinction will uh, go away over time as the industry becomes more mainstream. I think what I've seen in the last 10 years is uh, the taint of cannabis uh, used to keep us from talking to doctors, talking us to hospitals, talking to universities. So where I used to try to do some back-end research or trials outside the scope of the FDA, or um, I couldn't. There were no cannabis really programs in universities anywhere in the country. That's all changed now. Um, not so much in the medical schools, but in the undergraduate programs, there's more cannabis uh, approved programs trying to create people to bring into this industry than ever before. There's more people going into labs and looking at different formulations of cannabinoids. Uh, there's more people using uh, breaking cannabinoids from CBNs and CBGs and THCVs. How can we get a better result so that people that have illnesses with cannabis can help, uh, can get more mainstream. So there's more of that going on. I mean, ultimately, it's not about stoners walking in, give me the product with the highest THC at the lowest price. It's about people getting relief no matter what it is, whether it's someone with some illnesses like yourself or if it's a mother of four that has anxiety or nausea. She wants to know that she's gonna go in and get a product that gives her relief, that's consistent, safe each and every time. And that's what she does. I mean, the more education we bring, the more training for doctors we bring, all this will bring cannabis more mainstream. And uh, the history of how we got there uh, will be amazing story. So we're happy to be part of it. And uh, I think it's gonna get better. We're going through some some growing pains. It's interesting the you know acceptance of cannabis as well as psychedelics. So Sue Sisley um, is she has DEA approval for uh, for cannabis research, and yet her bank account at Bank of America just got shut down, which doesn't make sense at all. The DEA just approved an increase in psychedelic research. So um, cannabis kind of was the gateway to. Uh, psychedelics, if you will. I think CBD was the gateway to cannabis. If it wasn't for Charlotte's, uh, you know, Charlotte and Charlotte's Web, um, a lot of the soccer moms wouldn't get behind cannabis today. Would you agree with that? Starting 10 years ago, what was the major influence 
um, for the acceptance that you're seeing. I'm curious between all of the markets you're in, the Nevada, Illinois, Delaware, Massachusetts, and Maine. Is that where you're at? Maryland. Maryland. So we are in Maine. <clears throat> we license our brands <clears throat> in Maine, Puerto Rico, and soon five or 10 other states. So where we're not vertical, we'll be partnering with people who are buying production and distribution to get our brands across the country. But I think, I think you raised the point. The, uh, you know, we used to sit there and watch people in wheelchairs go before legislatures mm. to say, why can't we get cannabis? It gives us relief. I mean, veterans with PTSD, uh, wounded warriors. So I think the, the, it was really hard in the beginning. And then all of a sudden it got a little easier because some of the, uh, no one was dying from cannabis. No one was uh, driving cars over cliffs or seeing trees uh, fall on houses. So, um, and then all of a sudden the states were making money and money uh, in times that are hard, the tax revenue from oppressing cannabis with between local municipal taxes, state taxes, onerous 280E and federal taxes. The fact that we were all illegal didn't stop them from taxing the hell out of us. I mean, with no banking, high taxes. I mean, we have fought to make this viable uh, at incredible odds. Um, ultimately, the consumer pays for the profit and the cost of all this oppression. And ultimately, as we get more mainstream, uh, the price of cannabis and cannabis products will probably come down uh, and uh, be spread amongst more people. But where, where did you ever see an industry where there's more people uh, taking on trying cannabis than ever before? Mm -hmm. I mean, it may be some guys, uh, you know, baby boomers from the 60s that now that it's legal are back trying it and seeing it. But I think there's more habitual use, you know, with uh, beverages, infused drinks. People will start having, instead of a glass of wine, they'll have a seltzer with some THC in it. So I think uh, the use, the expansion of the base, the expansion of the category, uh, more dispensaries opening up, uh, more people getting, seeing it, advertising being legal. Uh, I think the industry is ready to uh, expand to another level. Are you I mean, guys looking to expand? Absolutely. Where are you guys, what's interesting? I know you can't necessarily, you're publicly traded, so you can't really tell me where you're looking at, but can you maybe tell us what's, what are some interesting markets? Well, we're looking uh, to expand in Illinois, okay. go vertical. We're looking in Michigan, Missouri. We just filed applications in Ohio. Uh, we're going to apply in New Jersey. The RFPA came out and is due this month. Uh, New York is going to allow legal applications next year. So we're expanding uh, as rapidly as we can. I think what differentiates Maramed than other MSOs is we're organically grown. I mean, my team, we won the licenses. We built the real estate. We created the workforce. Uh, we didn't go to Canada and raise hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. and then try to buy companies and assimilate cultures and systems. 
everything we do is uh, organic and, and financially disciplined. <clears throat> we had some issues back in 19 when we wanted to corner the CBD hemp market. And I could talk to you about that mm -hmm. probably all day. But uh, the economics of that industry sort of crashed in 19 mm -hmm. and with oversupply. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're refocused. In 2020, we had a transformational year back into cannabis. Uh, we expanded uh, with adult use in Illinois and Massachusetts. We opened dispensaries. We built out our cultivation. We doubled our revenue in 2020, which gave us confidence to uh, give our guidance first time for 21. Uh, we gave guidance of 100 million and 30 million in earnings, EBITDA. And uh, we started off the year great and we increased that to 118 million with 42 million in adjusted EBITDA. Uh, as some of our other MSO stocks have gotten, come down almost 50, 60%, Merrimed has come up. It's come up says we're basically, we're under the radar. We weren't on the Canadian exchanges. The value of our stock is still selling at a, a lower multiple than many of our MSO peers because uh, we're under the radar. So we've increased our bench strength. We've added an IR guy, VP of IR with experience, communication, we're adding new C CMO to expand our marketing. And we're uh, growing organically. So yeah, we will put our brands in more states this year. We will finish the roll up of the businesses that we built and we'll continue hopefully to double or do better of our revenue every year. So, uh, you know, we took an equity infusion back in February. We've paid off all our debt. So we're debt free other than first mortgages on real estate. Mm -hmm. We're cash flow positive. Uh, we're eminently profitable. We have the highest margins of anyone in the industry and we've got the best brands and we're gonna expand. So we are poised for growth in a disciplined and prudent manner. And uh, we're looking to tell the world who we are. And we think we're the best uh, valued stock on the marketplace. Well, that, that's a lot, Bob. So let's, let's unpack some of that. Hmm. Um, so 280E, you mentioned, that's the tax provision uh, where you can't necessarily write off things like labor. So that was kind of the cocaine cowboys where people were buying yachts. And so the IRS came in and said, no more writing off uh, illicitly <clears throat> gained assets. If, or rather when 280E is removed, your stock could significantly benefit because you'll immediately be able to write off those wages, therefore increasing your margin <clears throat> substantially. When do you anticipate that the feds, now that we have 30 something states uh, medical, uh, and that the consumer sentiment, the, the, the U S American sentiment is, is there behind it, supporting it. When do you anticipate 280E and or legalization to, to occur? Okay. Um, as far as, uh, legalization, um, you know, we used to joke about that 10 years ago. Yeah. Now it was a bill before the U.S. Congress. Um, the state's supporting legalization. Um, 
are the states with some of the largest cannabis programs and getting the best revenue. So the challenge of legalization is really complicated because of interstate commerce. How does the states protect the hundreds of millions of dollars that have gone in to create an in industry within each state mm -hmm. and protect the people that created it? You know, and make sure that a, some 12 year old in Bogota can't grow pot for $5 a pound and uh, fly it into Seattle. Um, <clears throat> we had hoped for safe banking, decriminalization, uh, Mark. I mean, uh, and I had hoped uh, in June or July when it passed the House and, this, and Senator Schumer said, we're going to build our own cannabis bill. <clears throat> there was hope that uh, something would happen. We all know what happened. Nothing happened. Uh, infrastructure. Um, so there's a lot more important things going on before Congress. It was interesting last, uh, I think a few weeks ago for the Republicans to push a cannabis bill for a vote and that hasn't happened. So I think between now and the end of the year, we don't expect anything. I mean, cannabis is a, is a, is, is, is both Republicans and Democrats want millennial votes and they're supporting cannabis. That said, I thought safe banking would happen. Mm -hmm. I thought the FDA would approve ingestibles on the CBD side a year and a half ago. Because yeah. that really hurts. Mm -hmm. um, I thought decriminalization would happen. I mean, Safe banking, I thought that Merrimed being on the OTC QX would have a path to NASDAQ for safe banking. Um, we didn't go to the CSC. We didn't raise hundreds of millions in Canada while it was still available. We've done organically, as I said, but to get more liquidity in our stock without that available, we'll probably do a list in Canada and bring in the retail sales from the Canadian market. Mm. Um, as to your issue on 280E, it's a terrible thing. Uh, it's a 35% chargeback for retail. Uh, if that passes in the part of the safe banking, then our profitability at our retail stores could double uh, or be higher. My CFO is not on the call, so I can't use numbers, but. Yeah, it will improve the profitability, which improve our earnings, which should improve our stock. Uh, the market is going through a correction. Um, there's not a lot of logic to what happens sometimes in cannabis, but um, there's more sales. Um, there's more users coming into the category um, and there's more availability in more states. So. The future of cannabis as an industry is only going to go up. Mm -hmm. I mean, so did I not answer your question? I think safe banking will pass in the foreseeable short-term future. Yeah. I think legalization is years away. Mm. Um, I think it will only get better. There'll be more research. There'll be better products. Uh, the people on the sidelines are getting closer. At the end of the day, uh, cannabis is becoming more mainstream, uh, more 
uh, about branding, distribution, filling consumer needs. There's more availability for advertising, marketing, digital marketing. There's more research and better quality products. So at the end of the day, Marimed and others are gonna look more like Kraft General Foods and consumer packaged goods company mm -hmm. uh, when legalization finally comes. So your stock's under the radar, but you've had 2x revenue in 2020. You mentioned 30 million in EBITDA, your guidance of 100 million, um, but it's which still under rate. Which we increased to 118 and 42 in adjusted EBITDA. The whole stock sector seems to be MOMO or momentum stocks. They really flowed with uh, November's election through about February. And then like you mentioned, had that 60% retracement. There's no rhyme or reason. Fundamentals have been dead for a long time. There's a lot of technical traders out there uh, who don't really care uh, about some of the important stuff. But you, you know, like in, having zero debt is crazy. What's the strategy behind that? And why is your stock so under the radar? Well, I think it's under the radar because no one knew about us. I mean, we, uh, we didn't do a great job on the capital markets, uh, IR and PR side. Um, we also had some confusion as to who we were. Uh, were we a consulting company that helped uh, cannabis people win licenses? Uh, did we, were we a management consulting real estate company? Because back in the day when there was medical only, uh, you couldn't own the license. So our revenue came from consulting fees, management fees, licensing fees, and rents. So I think part of our consolidation strategy was the marketplace was waiting to see it. We've now rolled in two of our five divisions, and that's taken our revenue uh, from the cannabis revenue into the financial reporting. Uh, as we finish our organically, this double digit growth will continue if not go higher. So yes, the other part was we didn't go to CSE. We didn't like, uh, we decided we were doing fine and we let our fundamentals and our discipline attract it. So some of the other guys that were peers of ours got way bigger, raised hundreds of millions, uh, started buying the licenses and, um, we didn't get into that craze. We don't have the issue of uh, simulating different businesses, different systems, different cultures. So our plan is to grow organically, keeping the culture and the image of our mission and our values to ourselves. And it's not always about the money. I mean, I love hearing stories like yourselves because that's how we all got into this business. I, uh, I love helping mothers with epileptic children. I mean, I mean, seeing the success of what we're doing, providing relief. Uh, we're big users and producers of RSO. We've seen miracles happen with people. You know, we sit here in Boston in the middle of the medical, uh, one of the great medical cities or states in the planet and stuff that we do. Uh, some of the doctors are amazed. So how do we turn the folklore into a peer review, clinical medical thing that can be expanded and used by our hospitals and by our doctors? How do we get more people looking 
ex-cannabis as a solution, not only for symptom relief, but, but curative relief if it can be done. So all that's now more possible and we're excited about it. So we're excited about our industry becoming more consumer related. We're excited about the opportunity to expand uh, the use of cannabis as a medical solution. And we're excited about uh, making more money for our shareholders and getting our stock back to where it used to be and will be again. They'll probably be excited about you going to the CSE. Would you need to go to the Canadian Stock Exchange if the Safe Banking Act were to pass tomorrow? Um, if NASDAQ, uh, we need to be on a larger exchange. Mm. So if NASDAQ felt that safe banking allowed it to have cannabis, American cannabis companies, mm. the answer is uh, Canada would not be as uh, important. Mm. Some people think it might be obsolete. So even if we do a list in Canada, we're still staying as an American-based, SEC-compliant U.S. company. Mm -hmm. It would only to be allow the people in Canada that uh, can only uh, get into cannabis through those exchanges. Okay. I mean, the other thing that's happened, we just got one analyst to pick this up. We have three or four other cannabis analysts from banks. <clears throat> They're going to pick up this company in the next several months. So our story is going to come out. People will start to know that uh, what we do um, and more about us. And uh, we're, we're excited. I mean, uh, ultimately, this, the, the value of the price, if our stock was higher, our currency would be a little stronger. We'd probably be more active in M&A. <clears throat> we're very disciplined as to dilution. So we're... Uh, we're out there looking for single state operators that are entrepreneurs like ourselves, that share our vision, our mission, mm -hmm. uh, commitment to quality and consistency, and wanna be part of a bigger umbrella of uh, more power, more capital, more established brands. Let's so talk about that, Bob. Let's talk about that. Do they have to be vertically integrated? What are you looking for when you're trying to find strategic partnerships and have some mergers and acquisitions? Washington State, for example, they have producers and processors that can't be retailers. So there's that separation. Is that, um, is that a turnoff from an investment standpoint? And what are you looking for when you look at strategic partnerships? Okay, so the answer is, depends on the state. Mm -hmm. um, there are states where the wholesale cannabis is an oversupply of cannabis and it's not maintaining a big price <clears throat> in those states. Are we talking about Oklahoma and Oregon? I don't want to pick on any state. <laughs> I'll say it. Go ahead. I mean, states like Michigan, Michigan's in it. They're all different. Mm. Michigan had a black market medical thing with 500 stores and no one even knew cannabis was in Michigan. Mm. So, so we want to get our brands. We think our brands are competitive. I mean, we outsell Incredibles or Warner and some of those brands in every state that were against them. Um, so the entry point, if everything ultimately is brands, distribution, direct to consumer, then we want to get our best brands in as many states and get more national acceptance of these as national brands. Mm -hmm. So the answer is I'd look for a, a partner that had a production and distribution in these states, obviously going vertical and only in the cultivation allows us to control 
the quality of the flour that's going into our, our infused products. So ultimately, and if there's a good wholesale market, I mean, we're not the big guys with the, the largest numbers. I mean, if you walk into our facilities, we grow craft buds at scale. We don't vertically uh, stack. Uh, our guys are tied to every room's its own environment. Uh, every person gets control over a room and he's responsible. Uh, our COO, Tim Shaw, says he puts love into every plant. That pays off. I mean, that really pays off because our nature's heritage brand of flour and concentrates, um, we can't produce it fast enough to sell it. So uh, commitment to quality, craft, uh, filling customers' needs uh, is, is the motto of this company and is the reason we're successful. What's some of the compliance or, or due diligence? I mean, when you went into California in 2008 and saw the market, a lot's changed. 10 years is, is a lifetime in this industry, like you mentioned. So there's some distressed assets. You know, there's sheep, you know, there's people literally in Washington giving their licenses away. They can't even sell them. Nobody wants it. So there's distressed assets on the West Coast. You're going into Ohio and new emerging markets. What's the difference? Like, what is your strategy when you're looking at those? And, and during the process, there's a lot of compliance and due diligence. How do you prepare to pull out a checkbook and make a decision? Well, we've got teams of experts in every aspect of the business. So if we go in and do diligence, we'll know quickly what's there, what needs to be, uh, and how good the marketplace is. I mean, I think, you know, the frustration of Washington being one of the first, they set up a highly regulatory situation um, and not a lot of people have made money in Washington, as good as the program is in a way. Oregon's a different case with oversupply. <clears throat> California had the best of both. I mean, when there was no regulations in California, people thought regulation would make the industry great. Regulation has strangled it, limited shelf space, onerous conditions, oversupply that can't have a place. I mean, the problem in California with, with is coming east. That extra flour is in the black market in, in New York, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. I mean, in a way, that's the competition for the businesses out east is the black market that's being fueled from black market cannabis from the West Coast. So I think uh, you have to be careful. Oklahoma is a different case. They're all different. Um, do we not want to be in California, which is a country of itself, mm -hmm. as the best and the worst of cannabis? Uh, uh, are we concerned about, yeah, I mean, so branding and distribution. <clears throat> so we've looked, uh, we would look to get our brands in a production and distribution thing is our least risky sense of capital. And if our brands have the success, it would be the most profitable expansion of the company. Uh, I, we're looking at Washington. We, we stepped away from there for two, three years. Someone just brought us something in Washington and we're trying to gauge where is the state at now. Mm. So yeah, it's state to state. 
It's making the right decisions based on the marketplace, the wholesale flower, the supply and the demand. Um, and you have to just know what you're doing. You have to believe what's gonna go wrong. Uh, some of these, these companies that are making prediction about next year or the year after's revenues and profits, um, it's a lot of factors involved in what's gonna happen. So, so far it's good, but every day we plan for things not being so good. And we make our business judgments based on uh, our sense of reality. Bob, let me leave you on this uh, final question, getting your crystal bong prediction. You mentioned one of your um, uh, clients or, or partners are in Puerto Rico. So when federal legalization happens, What's the market going to look like? Puerto Rico, for example, is, is a U.S. territory. They don't have congressional representation. You can't have taxation without representation, making Puerto Rico the only place in the world an American can go and not pay taxes. So to your point about the impact of 280E doubling revenue, uh, someone in Puerto Rico versus California, Puerto Rico is going to make 37 times more than Puerto Rico because they don't pay taxes in Puerto Rico. So the impact of that alone is massive. Where do you see um, the pros and cons if Colombia and Peru, like you mentioned, uh, is going to come in at 10 cents with landing costs per gram, massively disruptive? Where do you see the industry once legalization happens? Are, are wholesale pounds going to come down to $18 and match that of tobacco? Is there going to be massive consolidation? What is your crystal ball, crystal ball prediction for when legalization happens. Okay. Just a couple of things on Puerto Rico. So in Puerto Rico, we found a partner that makes this hot, hot sauce infused uh, tropezan. And this is uh, amazing. It's amazing. We introduced it into our markets and we put Betty's Eddie's into theirs. The Puerto Rico market, there's, there's tons of dispensaries and everything was doing good till uh, the hurricane came, mm. but it's doing bad. So Puerto Rico is an interesting, <clears throat> I can't compare it to California. You could put California in uh, one uh, section of Oakland. I mean, you could put Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, legalization um, is complicated. I think that the government's going to make it more like uh, they did for alcohol. It will be regulated and they'll protect the industry. Uh, there's gonna be a transition um, to protect the states and the businesses in those states. How they do on importing, uh, there'll be some huge tax or barrier to entry. Um, you know, the regulations of how things are grown in compliance, in metrics. I don't know how they're going to uh, be able to uh, see what's going on organically in Peru or Panama or Uruguay. <clears throat> Cannabis is worldwide now. You know, it's booming. Uh, the medical program in, in Germany is booming. Adult use is being discussed. A lot of companies and friends of ours, you know, we're in the CBD business. We're making entries into the EU through whether it was Portugal or Malta. <clears throat> looking at taxes. Um, 
So cannabis isn't going to be an international business. Uh, the United States market is still the market everyone wants to be in. And I think, uh, I think there'll be a transition. I think prices will come down, but I think there'll always be a, a market for quality and for the craft stuff that we produce and branding. So uh, I'm not that scared of uh, legalization. We're set to handle it whenever it comes. I think if it does good for the people that can use cannabis and enjoy it and get benefits from it, then it will be good for business. Well, Bob, we talked about a lot. Um, if anybody wants to get a hold of you uh, or find out more about Merrimid, where are you guys at? You have social media, website, you're on LinkedIn. Where can people get a hold of you? Where can they find you at? Well, I think there's info at marimedinc.com. Um, uh, we will, uh, wanna, I don't know exactly, uh, I don't want to give you my personal email. Oh, that's fine, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, but right now, uh, we're on web, we're on digital media, uh, and uh, everyone knows how to reach us. If not, just uh, go to info at marimedinc.com. Yeah, sounds good. And we'll put uh, some of that, uh, those links in the show notes in the description as well. So I think with that, we're gonna have to roll this one up. I want to thank my, my guest, Bob Fireman. He is the CEO of Merrimid uh, on the OTC QX under MRMD. Bob, thanks for being here with the Talking Hedge. God, thanks Talking Hedge for helping us. And as soon as I get my vegan ice cream, I'm going to figure a way of getting it to you in Seattle. I appreciate it. All right. All right. Well, I'm Josh Kincaid, and this is The Talking Hedge. So don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey, guys. Montal here. Inviting you to check out my podcast, Let's Be Blunt with Montel, where we have candid conversations about everything cannabis. We have over 250 episodes in our library, and a new show drops every single Thursday. So be sure to subscribe, and if you like what you hear, make sure you leave us a review.